is to facilitate uh, just a discussion about some of these really pertinent topics. So this year's theme is the household of God, and as kind of a point of emphasis, we want it to be about just assimilation. How do you, you know, you who are very committed to your church, help your church um, understand that same commitment? How do you make them feel like they are part of the family? And so what I'm going to do in this first session is just kind of give you a broader vision of what it means to be part of the household of God. And even though some of these exhortations may not apply to you, you can just pass them on to your congregation. Then we'll take a little break, and then afterwards, uh, Josh Mills at Cornerstone Bible Church in McPherson, his topic is going to be from fringe to family, and he's going to just share with you guys what he does to try to bring the fringe people into the core of the church, right? So it's just that you can see how one church applies it. And then uh, kind of a novelty that we do is for, for dinner, we've got a Mexican fiesta, by the way, and we're going to bring the cheesecake back. So, I mean, last year was spectacular, right? It, it was the culinary carnival in your mouth. It was, it was fantastic. Um, but what we do is we kind of divide people. Like if you're a senior pastor, we're going to put you in the senior pastor room. If you're an associate pastor, you go to the associate pastor room. If you're uh, a lay leader, you go to the lay leader room. And the reason why we do that is we want you guys to just kind of talk shop, right? And, and the standard question is, what do you guys do to assimilate people into your church? How to bring people in from being fringe to family? And just talk shop, what do you do? And our hope is that as you guys have these kinds of conversations, you get some good ideas. Oh, I never thought about that. Or you think, that's a guy I want to get his phone number and talk to him about these issues later on. Does that make sense? Because we just recognize that all of you guys are coming in with some great ideas and great input, and we want to give you a venue to you know, talk it through and just sharpen one another. And then we're going to come back for a Q&A. And so the way the Q&A is going to work, I think you guys all got a card. Uh, the food is over there, but the Q&A basket is over there. So if you can pry your way away from the snacks and deposit those, those would be good. And so Josh Mills and I, and then we're going to have John Warnley, one of our lay elders, um, be on a Q&A board. And if we run out of questions, we might take some live from the audience. And we trust you guys to do it right, right? So it'll be great. So let me go ahead and, and pray, and then we'll start, um, we'll start my message. Well, Father, we come before you uh, just grateful for all these shepherds here, men who love your church and who love you and want to be biblically faithful uh, to the high calling you have to lead the flock. We pray for each and every church here, Father, that you will help our church to rightly relate to each other as you would have us to, that we'll understand the immense privilege of being a part of the family of God. I pray that I'll be clear. I pray that your word will speak. In Christ's name, amen. Well, over the Christmas holidays, I, I managed to go back to Southern California where I had coffee outside. It was wonderful, right, back when we did that. And we were just talking about his church and, and how his church and the fundamental composition of his church changed uh, because of COVID. Uh, during COVID, uh, many longtime members um, who were very conscientious, I guess, about some of the the health and human service policies uh, were very upset at this church taking a more uh, libertarian stance, and they left the church. Whereas other people were drawn to the church because of their anti-masking policy, and they left their church to go to a different church. And he said, you know what, the, the church is just really different right now. Uh, the composition just changed because of COVID and people changing churches because of masking 
policies. And I understand there's a lot more to that, but even talking to some of my brother pastors up in the Kansas City area, they said, you know what, we stayed open during COVID and we saw an explosion of growth. Many people left their churches to come to our church. And when we began to try to integrate them and assimilate them and put them through maybe the membership class and explain what we believe and what we teach, we noticed that half of them left because they thought, oh, you mean this is what you believe? Now, switching churches is is not inherently wrong. I think there's a lot of good reasons to switch churches. I've I've encouraged people to perhaps attend another church in town for a variety of reasons. I understand that sometimes jobs move you from one place to another, and that's really one of the great things about the Ironman Summit is I know which churches to send you to, right? Hopefully some of you have gotten some exports from our church, and they've been good exports, not bad ones. So it's not inherently wrong, but there. But, but I guess from a pastoral perspective, I'm more concerned in about why you're switching churches. Uh, Lifeway Research, a big Southern Baptist research arm, actually um, did a survey. They polled people who switched churches for non-residential move reasons, and this is what they found. 29% changed churches because something changed about the church they did not like. 29% changed because the church was not fulfilling their needs. And 27% changed because they became disenchanted with the pastor. And then 13% changed because of COVID. Now, I want you to finish this sentence, okay? Easy come, easy go, right? And that's one of the concerns I have. Now, if you are familiar at all with the foster system, there is a, a phenomenon called reactive attachment disorder, RAD. And basically what that says is that when a foster child goes from one family to another family, it's that much more difficult for them to make a a strong emotional attachment to the parents. And if they go to another family, then to another family, each successive move weakens their ability to attach and to really submit and embrace the authority structure of their new family. And so if you have people who go from church to church to church to church, it really weakens their ability to truly attach and become part of the the family of God. Now, this is compounded because we live in a very, what's called an individualistic society, okay? Where we don't think in terms of what's best for the group, we think in terms of what's best for me. And so the church for many people is almost this utilitarian aid to nurture my spiritual growth. And if the church doesn't nurture my spiritual growth and deepen my personal relationship with the Lord, if I'm not getting a lot out of it, then my obligation to myself is to leave, and they will. But when you do this, I think you're really violating the spirit of the New Testament church, where the church is not an aid to spiritual growth, although it does aid in that. The church is actually um, something more than just the Kiwanis Club, or a business, the picture that we get, at least in the passage for today, is that the church is a family. In fact, turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Paul tells Timothy, and this is the uh, theme of the conference, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave 
in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, as is often the case in Paul's letters, controversy occasions a letter. Uh, the Ephesian church was overtaken by divisive men who are teaching an alternate theology. And when you have that happening, you, you could see the fabric of the church slowly being torn, torn apart by, by, by division, right? If you've ever been a part of a, of a church split, you know that the first thing to go is the mission. When a church is at war with one another, they cannot advance the kingdom of God. They cannot advance the gospel. And so he wants to establish peace and order. So he sends Timothy there with some instructions about how to reset the church. He, he calls on them to rightly understand the relationship with the governing authority, to pray for kings and rulers. He, he calls on them to understand the right relationship with the elders and the, and the deacons, establishing ecclesial authority. He, he tells women to, to understand their place and their role in the congregation, right? It's all about restoring order so that they can properly function as a pillar and buttress of the truth. But then he gives this positive vision. I think this is the, the central theme of the letter. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, here's the purpose of the letter, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, all believers would say, of course I believe in the household of God, and of course I believe in the church. I believe in the universal church. And yes, it is true that we're brothers and sisters with every Christian on this planet. Agreed? But the purpose of Paul's letter is he's calling the Ephesian church, the local church, the household of God. He wants them to behave as a spiritual family should. He, he does not want them to be a, a dysfunctional family. He wants them to have a, a high view of the church. Now, <clears throat> At our church, we, we like to say we promote a, a high view of God. Okay, God is up here. We're down here. We submit to his rule and his authority. He calls the shots. It's his world. We're just living in it, right? A high view of God. And we understand that when you have a high view of God, you want to have a high view of his word because his word tells you what to think and what to believe and what to embrace. And his word tells us to embrace the church and to have a high view of the church. Now, as good Protestants... Right, as good Protestants, we, we can be a little bit suspicious of people saying that we should have a high view of the church. Certain religions teach that salvation is mediated through the church. You need to go through, not to a pastor, but to a priest to mediate salvation through the sacraments, and we know that that's unbiblical. Further, uh, we also understand that there were many churches that did not impress upon the importance of conversion. Right During the Great Awakening, everyone was a part of the church, but no one was part of the universal church because they hadn't converted. And so we understand that you need to appeal to people that you personally need to have a relationship with God. You can't just be part of the church. We also understand that the credibility of the church has been under assault as there have been many bad actors who have been leading the church that cause people to be suspicious of authority. So there's a lot of understandable reasons why some people are just suspicious of the church and they don't necessarily want to be part of a household of God because it almost sounds like it's a cult. But what's needed is a biblical vision for what God wants the church to be. He saves sinners from everlasting wrath. He transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, from darkness to light, and from 
spiritual estrangement to a spiritual family. Right? The church is God's active presence in this world. The Holy Spirit works through the church. He changes us and he creates a family. And so we obviously, we don't want a pastor-dependent church, right? We don't want people to say, you go to Pastor Dave's church or Pastor Brett's church. You want people to say, I go to my church. You don't want people to say, uh, my church believes this, but we believe this, right? There's a level of commitment and a loyalty that just compels us to see each other as part of the family of God. And I know when I look around this room, I am confident that all of you are there. Otherwise, you wouldn't be giving up your Friday afternoon to do this. And so part of my approach here is, yes, I will be preaching to you, but I'm preaching to your congregation through you. Does that make sense? There'll be exhortations that maybe don't apply to you, but, but my hope is that by talking this out with you guys and sharing this with you, you'll have the language and the understanding that you can kind of, you know, export to your congregation to really help lay down the vision and you can kind of start to flesh that out or think through how to flesh that out as we go through the rest of the day and as you you know debrief with your with your leadership team so what we're going to do is we're going to answer three questions what does it mean to see the church's family okay what does it mean to see the church's family what holds people back from seeing the church's family and how can you help people see the church's family so what does it mean to see the church's family? What holds people back from seeing the church's family? And how can you help people see the church's family? So we'll look at the first point. What does it mean to see the church as family? Okay, so there, there's many analogies to the church. You have the bride of Christ, you have the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we just established here that you have the household of God, that you are to see the church as family. Now, I think to understand this analogy, it's pretty important that we um, kind of think through how did the original audience view the family? What was their conception of the family life? Was their family life a husband, wife, and two kids with a two-car garage and a TV in the bedroom, or was it something else? Well, we live in a very strong individualistic culture, but they lived in a very strong group or collectivist culture. And so when you look at the questions of identity that people would ask, right? Like, what am I going to do with my life? Who will I spend my life with? Where am I going to live, right? When, you, when we have conversations, we're trying to sort people out, right? What do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. Where do you live? I live in Emporia. Uh, who are you married to? My wife is Becky, right? We, we make all those decisions, and that's the normal expectation, right? And incidentally, I tell people I nailed all of those, right? So I, I'm thankful for that. But in a collectivist culture, it's the community that makes those decisions. You ever thought about that? It's the community that makes those decisions. Where are you going to live? Well, I'm from you know, the tribe of Judah. I will live in Judah, in this town where my clan is from. What are you going to do for a living? Well, I'm a Levite, so I guess that'll make me a priest. Or my father was a carpenter, so I'll be a carpenter. My dad is a farmer, so I guess I'll farm. Where are you going to farm? I'm going to farm this land. Who are you going to marry? Well, it depends on how the family arranges my marriage. Right? It was something where Israel saw itself as a family of families, right? It was your relationships that determined where you lived, what you did, who you married. 
They even lived in family-led communities where the elders of the various families would talk and make decisions at the city gate. And so there is, uh, there was always even an understanding that because we're part of Abraham's family, right? We are, we are chosen. We are the blessed people of God. It was taught in Proverbs that the glory of their children is their father and a foolish son brings shame to the mother, right? Your identity was tied up into your family. Your family determined everything about you. And if you did something foolish, like pick up your cross and follow Jesus and reject the religion to follow Messiah that they're going to reject, you can expect opposition, right? This is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 10, 34 to 38. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mo- her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross to follow me is not worthy of me. Now, I will qualify this. Jesus still calls on us to honor our mother and father. He still made um, arrangements for the Apostle John to care for his mother while he's on the cross. But he acknowledges that the social pressure that a family puts on you to not follow Jesus has to be rejected. To follow Christ means that you have to walk away from the most intimate relationships that you have in your life. Peter made this commitment. He tells Jesus in Matthew 19, 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have, right? I left everything, business, my family, everything I've left to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, now that doesn't apply to you. You won't get that, but this does. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Separate blessings, right? It's not like you receive the new family when you get eternal life. That's a separate blessing. This is a promise that when you leave your family, when you make that courageous step to follow Christ, He's going to give you a new family. And for first-generation Christians, that was critical, and we'll get to that later on. So Jesus had this understanding that there's a new spiritual family. So when Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, he fleshes this idea of the spiritual family out throughout the letter. Right? Now, did Paul have children? Did Paul have children? It's a trick question, isn't it? Because in 1 Timothy 1.2, he says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Wait, I thought he didn't have children because he didn't get married. Yeah, he, he was not married, but he did have children. He had spiritual children, right? When, when Paul is ordering the household and appointing elders, he tells elders that an elder, a qualified man, must, in the words of 1 Timothy 3.4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Notice the parallelism between household and church. 
You know, the church is not a business where you can just fire people, right? Some of you would like to do that. Some of you would like to hire people from other churches. But it doesn't work that way, right? There, there's a family. And, and you look at these deep attachments that we have to the family. I mean, you're stuck with your family, for better or for worse, right? Why do some people you know, travel halfway across the country and celebrate Thanksgiving with people who, who bring up, let's say, childhood embarrassing stories, don't show the same respect to you that everybody else does, makes mediocre meals that you've since outgrown and learned that you can actually make turkey better than this, right? Why do you do all that? Because they're family, right? There's this obligation that we have to the family that's, that is a good thing. There's a loyalty. There's a shared experience. And that's, that's what Paul wants his people to have. He says in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father and a younger man as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So notice he's saying you need to relate to them as mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters. And throughout his letter, letters, he always addresses the church as, as brothers. And that was a big deal. You see, in the ancient Near East, especially during this time, in Roman and uh, I'd say to a certain extent uh, Hebrew families, your family and who was a member of your family was determined by whether or not your father's blood was in them. It's called a patrilineal arrangement. Okay, so your dad shares his blood with you and your sister and your children, not your wife and not your mother. So the true family and the closest relationships that you can have during that time would be through your siblings. Your mother, not so much, but your brother and your sister. And this explains like all those tales of vengeance. It happens when somebody's sister gets assaulted, right? You mess with somebody's sister, the wrath of the brothers is upon you, right? There is this zealousness there to guard that. That's, that's kind of different. It also explains one of the most puzzling uh, love lines in the Bible. Do you know what that is? How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. It's used four times in the Song of Solomon. How delightful you are, my sister, my bride. Now, I've been told by a certain member of my family never to use that line. <laughs> Again... You know, just, just trying to be biblical. But in a day and age where, where wives are almost disposable, right? Where you can just get another wife. You can get a concubine. What he's saying is, you're as close to me as a sister. You're not just my wife. You have all, you have all the affection that can ever give to a woman, right? Now, still don't use that love line, but it kind of makes sense, right? And so the closest relationship would be your brother and your sister. That was kind of what, what kind of linked families together. Now, I'm not saying that this is right. I think one of the reasons why there's such an emphasis on marriage is a biblical trajectory, right? The emphasis on the church being the bride of Christ, uh, that the church, that marriage represents the gospel, right? Christ's relationship with the church. Uh, the fact that it's one man, one woman for life, and that was rigorously enforced by the church uh, really elevated marriage to where it should be, okay? But at the time, when you said brother and sister and calling them brothers or sisters, that is like this deep family bond that you're using, 
Okay, so when you look at all this, there was a new family that was often forged by necessity because many people would, um, especially first-generation Christians, leave their family. They were seen as betrayers to their family, and God would give them a new family, and this new family would take care of them. So in Acts 2, 44 through 46, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Right? There was this family obligation to part with their wealth to serve their brothers and sisters. And they did so not because of the strength of their blood relationship. Right? They had a tie that was deeper than shared paternal DNA. What they had was a common bond of the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children than heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We don't share the same blood, but we share the same spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Your ancestral lineage was inconsequential. If you have the spirit of God, and I have the spirit of God, we're brothers. It's a relationship deeper than blood brothers. Now, often when we think about our salvation, we often think about the vertical relationships that we receive, right? When you are saved, you are justified. God looked at you, reckoned you as innocent on account of Christ's work for you on the cross. Christ took your sin, gave you his righteousness. You are justified, declared innocent. We think in terms of being sanctified, right? We are, we are saints. We are regarded as sinless in God's sight, positionally speaking, right? So you're justified, right? You're, you're sanctified. And those impact this vertical relationship here. But there's another benefit. At the moment of salvation, you were family-fied. You received brand new horizontal relationships. You were baptized into the body of Christ. The same spirit in you is in everyone else. You are part of a new family with the same spirit. Often when we look at all the letters um, and we think about love and loving relationships. What is the classic marriage passage that people often ask to be read at their wedding? 1 Corinthians 3. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. That's not a marriage passage. That's actually a church passage. All of these commands are about how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. We look out for each other. We care for each other. We hurt with one another. We weep with one another. We honor one another. We rebuke one another. We carry each other across the finish line. There is this obligation that God calls us to have with our spiritual brothers and sisters because we have a bond deeper than blood. We have a bond shared by the, the Spirit. So, Given the beauty of that and that, and that miracle, what, 
what holds people back from this kind of family relationship? What, what kind of leads them to, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too deep into the church. I remember growing up, my dad used to tell me when we went to church, we didn't really go to church that often, but when we did, and I'd see people join membership, my dad would just tell me, Dave, don't join a church, they'll just want your money. Now, through God's grace, he became a Christian at 70, and he is joining a church and giving it his money. So it all came full circle, so that's good. But you know what I'm saying? There's always been the suspicious suspicion of, of, of church leadership. So why don't people join the church? Well, one reason is they're not part of the spiritual family. You know, a lot of times people go to church because these people have to be nice to me. They're called to love me. They accept me. They're generous towards me. They include me. Right? And that's a beautiful thing. We have many people who come to our church just because they just like the people and they tolerate my teaching. But ultimately, there has to be a point where they cross over and they become born again so that the same spirit that dwells in us dwells in them. And, and I remember when I became a Christian, I'm a, I'm a first-generation Christian. I became a Christian at KU. I got excited every time I met a Christian. I'd watch some sports game, and some athlete would give praise to God and say, I knew it, they were a Christian. Right? And, and imagine like you were taken from your family, you know, and you found out that you had this other family. You know, when you're 30 or something like that, you'd want to find them, right? And so there's always this eagerness to find out, oh, is he part of my family? Is he part of my family? Uh, is that person a Christian? That is the natural response of somebody who is a Christian. There's an eagerness to want to meet and find and forge a relationship with your brothers and sisters, right? And that's part of being born again. But there's another category of people out there who I will call, you know, arm's length Christians, right? I'm a Christian. I converted but I go to church when it's convenient for me. If you start to ask them for more commitment, right, the arm comes out. Not so fast, pastor. They, they often treat the pastor as if they're on commission to get you more committed, right? I'm suspicious of you. I knew you wanted me to join the church, right? So they're very guarded, very off-putting. What do you say to that person? Well, one reason why they're at arm's length is they don't want accountability, right? They, they don't want accountability. And I, I see this um, many times in, in men, especially those of the strong patriarchal type. I need to focus on the family, right? There's, there's a ministry out there that suggests I should. I'm the prophet, priest, and king of this family, and you are not going to usurp any authority from me. Anything that diminishes my authority is dangerous. Have you guys met these people? I remember talking to one gentleman who went through our membership class and told me that he wasn't going to join the church because it would violate his constitutional rights. Really? So I recommended that he goes to a church across town. Sorry, Brad, but I don't, I'm not sure if he showed up. But you know what? This guy... Um, I also knew later on, uh, was abusing his son. In fact, they did a, um, a research project about domestic abuse, and they discovered that the husbands most likely to beat their wives are evangelical men who don't go to church. 
The husbands most likely to beat their wives are evangelical men who don't go to church. And do you know who the husbands are that are least likely to beat their wives with the lowest rates of domestic abuse? Evangelical men who go to church. Interesting. See, a lot of times people want to push people away, push, they don't, I don't want too many questions. I want to live my relationship with the Lord on my terms. I don't want anybody getting into my business, right? I don't want accountability. I think there's another one where it's not so much they, they don't want accountability, they, they don't want to lose their freedom. Because when you commit to church, you're decommitting to other things, right? Maybe you don't run for the school board because you're going to be on the elder board, right? Maybe you need to cancel that golf appointment on, on Sunday morning because you got an appointment with church, right? There's a time commitment involved. Uh, some of that money that you want to hold back for yourself, you have to give to the church. You, you, you don't want to be inconvenienced by it. And, and it's not just, just the practical stuff. There's even the emotional burdens, right? When, you're, when you really love a group of people and somebody, let's say, in your church has cancer, right? It's hard to sleep at night, right? You are carrying that burden. And so a lot of people just don't want to lose their freedom. And, you know, the same people would say, you know, I would die for Christ if it came to that. And I, I, I want to tell them, don't say I will die for Christ if you won't be inconvenienced by his bride. Right? Don't say I'm going to die for Christ if you won't be inconvenienced by his bride. You have been saved for a purpose. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, is a gift of God, not as a result, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, this is Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And part of the good works is building up the body of Christ. But the fourth reason why uh, people would kind of hold themselves at arm's length from the church is they don't want to be hurt. I think this might be the most frequent one. And to this, I would say, you know what? I don't doubt that that's happened to you. Uh, there's a lot of men, even a lot of women, um, who have wounded the sheep, and there is a special pain when the men entrusted to care for your soul, who are to represent Christ in your life, use that position and that power to exploit and, and hurt you. Right, that happens. I wish it didn't. But it doesn't happen all the time. And there's churches out there where it doesn't happen. And God still wants you to be a part of a church, even if it's flawed. Uh, secondly, while there's real tragic tales of church hurt, um, I think often people will exaggerate this. Just because your feelings are hurt doesn't mean that they should be hurt. You know, I went to this church and nobody talked to me. Oh, really? No one talked to you. Well, they did. Well, how did you respond? Well, I didn't. Listen. I come over here, you throw out an accusation, you cross your arms, you give me one-word answers, and you basically have a resting face that's not inviting and friendly. Perhaps a reason why the church was not friendly to you is because you're not being friendly to them. Perhaps the problem is not out there. Perhaps the problem is well, you, right? <laughs> now, I wouldn't suggest saying that, but do you know what I'm saying? But uh, the church was not friendly. Well, are you, were you being friendly? I found that that actually helps. The church was, were you being friendly? No. Okay, well, 
takes two, right? But thirdly, I mean, being hurt is being part of the community, right? I don't want to get married because I might get hurt. Well, there's a lot of other benefits of marriage that don't involve hurt and pain, <laughs> right? I, I joked around like, you know, Josh Smith is my friend and I hurt his feelings all the time. No, I'm just kidding. I, I might be hurting them now. But, you know, that's just part of the, that's just part of it, right? We hurt each other's feelings. But that is not a reason to avoid people. That's a reason to work things out and apply the gospel to those relationships. If you never want to get hurt, then you're not going to have any relationships, right? So how do you motivate people to be part of a family? What's, what kind of process? And I'll just give you some exhortations. First of all, we tell people, become a member become a member. You know, there, there's always this um, weird in-between time in relationships. Perhaps maybe you took your, you know, would-be wife out on the first date, and you're just friends, you're just hanging out. But there has to come a time where you have to answer the question, so what are we, right? You've been coming to our church for six months, uh, you seem to be showing up, so do you want to commit to the church or not? Do you know what that means? And so we have a membership process in place, and I know Josh will probably talk more about what they do, but it's a time to kind of make the commitment official. I want you to know that this is my church, and I want you to be my leaders, I want you to be my elders, I want you to shepherd my soul, and we say, okay, yeah, we vet you, we, we think you have a solid testimony, and you kind of know what's expected out of you, and then they become a member. And when people become members, they basically tell the whole church, this is my church, this is my family. And it's a lot easier for people to kind of open their hearts to them. When you kind of take that first step, that's often what happens. Secondly is be present. If the doors are open, you show up. Is there a Bible study or a small group or a Sunday school? You show up, you be there. Then I think another one is just to be known. Be known, Op- yeah, we, we can't read your mind. If you're struggling with some fear and anxiety, if you have a secret struggle with pornography, don't keep it to yourself. Invite people in your life to, to help you. If you're, even if you're having surgery, don't just keep it to yourself because you don't want to be a bother. Let the church carry that burden for you, pray for you, serve for you. Fourth, I would say, integrate your life. You know, a lot of you guys have lives outside of church. Um, perhaps you are... Uh, coaching your kid's soccer team, or you're part of a bowling league, or you like to go biking, or, or perhaps you're, you're part of a, you know, some sort of social club. And this is what I'd say to you. Uh, being a part of church doesn't mean you, you, you pull back from that stuff per se, but I'd say you would try to integrate your life. If you're part of a, uh, a basketball league at the rec center, invite your tall friends to join you, Right? Hey, they go to my church. Invite the people that you're playing with to come to church. You don't want to keep your lives separate. For instance, let's say a guy belongs to a bowling league, and he goes there every Tuesday and Thursday night, but he never invites his wife along. Nor does he invite his bowling league friends to his house to meet his wife. This has been going on for five years. I got my bowling league life, and I got my wife, and I never want them to intersect. Now, do you know what that suggests? Either he's ashamed of his bowling league friends or he's ashamed of his wife. Don't separate your lives. Integrate them. And fifth, I would say integrate your family. 
You'll blur the lines between your family and the family of God. Now, this is kind of a word to pastors because there's a lot of ink that has spilled on how you need to kind of keep things separated. You need to make sure you pull back on the church so that you can minister to your family, right? And so a lot of, a lot of men kind of feel this tension of, of how do I allocate my, allocate my time? And, and my motto is, is we call Flint Hills Bible Church the family business. What's good for Flint Hills Bible Church is good for the family. The church has been good to our family. And so instead of like feeling this division where my family pulls me away, well, if there's a membership class that I have to do on Sunday night, we'll offer babysitting. And then I volunteer my kids, guess what you're doing Sunday night? But I will let you eat ice cream afterwards. So I'm a generous father, right? But, you know, they, but they've learned that this is just part of what hints do. We're part of the church. This is part of our family. They look out for us. They care for us. We are giving to this church because they've been so good to us, right? This is our family. And I think another thing, too, is um, like I invite, I try to invite other people to speak into my, my children. Uh, and this is where things can get touchy because often people are very sensitive about how they are raising their children. And they're, they're very um, persnickety if somebody, let's say, confronts their children. Anybody in youth ministry here? Have you ever been in youth ministry or college ministry? You know that some of the most difficult people to deal with are angry parents, right? Who insist that they know the real Johnny. You don't. So Nate and I, we've been having this conversation. He's my youth dad. Nate, raise your hand right, right there. He's, uh, he's been great. Um, but he's told me that he's kind of noticed this pattern that the children who leave our church and go out into the world and do the best are the ones who have parents who allow the youth staff to speak into their lives. And the parents who seem to fare the worst are the, the ones where they're really resistant to the youth staff speaking into their lives. Consider. High school student named Johnny comes to his dad after camp and says, Dad, Pastor Nate was mean to me. He asked me at camp if I ever look at pornography, and I told him no. And then he asked to look at my phone so he could check my internet history. Dad, he called me a liar. Well, no twit youth pastor's ever going to call my son a liar. But Nate, what do you do talk to my son like that? Now, what did he just do? Son, it's you and me against the church. It's you and me against the church. Nobody at the church has a right to call you out on your sin. I'm, I'm with you, bud. Versus, oh wait, so he asked to see your internet history and you didn't give him the phone? Well, I'm going to call him Pastor Nate right now. Nate, we're going to come over with Johnny and he's going to open up his phone in front of you and we're going to check the history together. He just said, Johnny, Pastor Nate and I are taking a stand against your sin. And I thank God that he called you out because this is a destructive sin and we need to take it seriously. What's going to happen? Do you see what I'm saying? Like when you try to keep the church at arm's length and you don't invite people, and you know maybe there's some sadistic parents who are just super self-righteous and enjoy just rebuking random children. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> or maybe these people who, you know, feast on 
Mountain Dew and Doritos at the expense of their waistline to do an overnighter with your kids and give up their vacation time. And then they take the time to talk to them about these issues. Maybe these people who are sacrificing your kids might have a point, right? So that's part of it is I thank God for the people who not only encourage my children, but also confront my children, right? They're part of the family too. Those are the aunts and uncles. Six, I would say, Resolve conflict biblically. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Romans 12, 18. Now, this is difficult and challenging because um, the easiest thing to do when you have a conflict with someone is to do what? Avoid them. Avoid them. Oh, they're standing over there. I'm going to stand over here. And things can fester and things could grow. There can be backbiting. If somebody has wronged you, it's easier to, to talk to your pastor about it and try to get your pastor to fix it. And this is what I encourage people to do. I always tell people in your first three years of ministry, when you start a new ministry, teach your congregation how to resolve conflict biblically. And here's the first one. Here's the first lesson. If somebody has offended you, before you talk to anybody else, you talk to them. How many church wars would have stopped if people would have done that? And see, what that does is when the whole church knows about this, the rules of engagement have been established. Why are you talking to me? You're supposed to talk to him. That's what, you know, Pastor Dave taught in this series on conflict resolution. Oh, yeah, I guess I better. Do you know what I'm saying? It preserves the unity of the church. It forces people to work out their differences. You know, the thing is, working out these conflicts, it means that you have to humble yourself, you have to be open to understanding what you did wrong. And honestly, like every relationship where I've resolved a conflict has only strengthened it, right? Because both of us are going through the pain to make it stronger. Working out your difference is part of God's plan for your sanctification. And finally, I would say this. If you want your church to see itself as a family, um, you need to see the church as your family. I'm speaking to pastors specifically. There is a vein of pastoral wisdom, you might have heard it, that a pastor should never be friends with people in the congregation, or a pastor's wife should never be friends with people in the congregation because it will create envy, jealousy, skew your judgment, and you'll get hurt, right? So it's almost like the role of the pastor is to kind of levitate above the congregation and dispense blessings from on high. And part of it is we kind of understand that relationships are transactional, right? If I help you, there's almost this obligation that you are to help me. And I think when people have this transactional understanding of relationships, they always want to be the one to help but never the one to be helped. And I think at the root of that is they don't understand grace. I mean, I have known pastors who will keep struggles private, financial struggles, relationship struggles, marriage struggles. They won't share the joys that they have with the congregation because they don't want people bringing them meals. They don't want to bother other people. And maybe it's their insecurity where they don't think that the church loves them. But if you don't think that the church loves you, you're not going to love the church that much. You don't even give the church a chance to try. Or it could be 
they're hiding something. They're not allowing the church to sanctify them. Or it could be they just have this transactional view of ministry where if they help me, I'm going to be even deeper in debt to them, which is a misunderstanding of what God wants this family to be about. You see, to build a resilient community and to see the church as family, part of it begins at the top of, do you see the church as your family? Are you committed to us to that end? I mean, ultimately, I think seeing the church as family, I mean, we, we are living in a society where there's a disintegration of the family. Bonds are being broken. Young people don't want to have kids anymore. And what better way to really witness to this world than to show what the Spirit of God can do to a group of diverse people. It can bring us together as a family. Let me go ahead and pray, and then I'll give you some instructions. Well, Father, I do thank you for um, these brothers here, and I pray that all of us will embrace the church as a family, that we'll live it, benefit from it, and... I thank you for my local church, but I also thank you for the universal church and that you have these leaders of various local churches here. And I pray that we will be stimulated to really consider how to familyify the church to embrace that wonderful blessing that you've given us when you called us to Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.